Welcome back to Equity, a podcast all about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. It is May 5th, 2023. And yes, my friends, this week, Alex Conrad's Midas list did come out. So if you see a VC crying in the corner, go over and flick them in the earlobe because it turns out they're not made of gold. <laughs> and I'm joined today by my two besties in one corner. I have Marianne Azevedo. Marianne, did you make the Midas list? Uh, no. Boo, hiss, fired. Natasha, did you make the Midas list? I'm still hoping for 30 under 30 one day. I'm, I'm that's me. That's where I'm at. <laughs> you, can't, you can't come on and flex your age like that. That's brutal. <laughs> Anyways, we have an absolutely packed show for you guys this week. We're going to start with an update on FRB, really kind of a peer into that smoking crater that was once a bank. Then we're going to talk about paparazzi and Databricks buying Okara. From there, payments infra and all things Phoenix, followed by down round spiking in popularity. No one likes them, but you know, what we mean. And then finally, an update on Twitter rivals and all things blue sky. It's going to be absolutely packed, but let's start with, well, bad news, Natasha, with FRB news. I don't know how to phrase that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's mixed feelings, which is somewhat of the story. So First Republic Bank, which was the bank a lot of people went to after Silicon Valley Bank first crashed or was showing signs of crashing. People were bringing up FRB, FRB, FRB. Obviously, fast forward to today, it's been over a month and a half since SVB first crashed. And FRB has also now collapsed. It was put under FDIC receivership and its assets are going to be sold to JP Morgan, which is, you know, a huge hit for the startup ecosystem. But as Mary Ann and I wrote along with Christine Hall, the reaction was somewhat neutral. We've been here before, but this does suck. So it's a mixed feeling sort of crash versus SVB, which felt a lot more panicky. <laughs> I think that could be attributed to a couple of things. I mean, one with SVB, there was clearly some things going on internally, like we talked about last week that really led to the loss of confidence there and, and the rush of people uh, taking out their money. First Republic feels more like a casualty to all of that mess, which again, I mean, makes me just feel really bad for First Republic. Like, like it just sucks, you know, if you didn't necessarily do anything wrong, but just kind of by association, all, you're you're having to shut down. I mean, again, I really don't know all of the internal goings on there. But overall, I would say, though, that this does feel like a, a net negative for the startup community. I mean, totally. two banks that really served these types of companies no longer exist. I definitely don't see how this could be good at all for startups right now. Hard agree with the startup's point. Reading your guys' piece, it was clear that people are really worried about losing that bespoke banking relationship, that hands-on touch, and the ability to talk to a banker who not only answers the phone, but also gets that you're building an early stage startup versus building kind of a brick and mortar thing with assets and so forth. What I want to slightly nitpick with Marianne is the not their fault bit, because my vibe was very much that like, you know, FRB just kind of a, you know, in the next domino to fall, but not their fault. However, it's since SVB's collapse has been better understood and we're learning more about the end of First Republic. Each bank seemed to have made relatively poor choices during the end of the mm -hmm. zero interest rate environment that mm -hmm. led to a lot of unmarked losses. With mm -hmm. um, Silicon Valley Bank, it was putting all their deposits into treasury notes at like 1%. And with the First Republic, I'm reading a lot about how they made a lot of mortgages at a very low interest rate, kept those on the books, and they had a lot of kind of unmarked losses. So, okay. yes. And then also, but. But moot now, you know, because it's it's kaput. 
Yeah, no, but I'm glad you brought that up. So they're not totally like, I guess, innocent in all this. They're not necessarily 100% a casualty. So glad you brought that up. Regardless, still does seem like a big blow for the startup community. Are you guys hearing about like what's next? I mean, Marianne, I know this is kind of your domain. So like is a startup e-bank where people are going to go or are they all going to end up at like, you know, JP Morgan Chase? Well, a lot of them have gone to JP Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo. They have also gone to the three fintechs that also do this sort of thing. BAM, as they're referred to, Brex, ARC, Mercury. And we've got some stats in our story about that. So, I mean, honestly, I think that the companies are really very much diversifying. Everyone's like, no, we can't put all our money in one place. They're yeah. spreading it out. But, you know, we're hearing mixed things. Like I hear, of course, from competitor like ARC saying, oh, the, the JP Morgan customers feel underserved. They're not getting, you know, that attention or they're not getting the type of service that they are looking for necessarily. But I did talk to someone like at a South by Southwest event who told me at the time that they were looking for a banking partner. They tried to work with Silicon Valley Bank, got turned down and ended up at JP Morgan Chase and were very happy with them. So, you know, I guess it really kind of depends on who you talk to. Yeah, I can only echo that. I mean, I just was at a dinner yesterday that was sponsored by Brex. And I feel like there was obviously that history of SVB sponsoring every tech dinner of every emerging fund manager ever. And I feel like startups, if they're going to be smart about it, they know that a lot of companies, even if they you know love these fintech startups, are probably being told by at least one of their more conservative or risk averse investors, go with a big four bank, like do not put all your eggs in in a fintech that's then going to kind of diversify it for you. And so I almost think like people are going to piece together their own versions of it, where it's going to, in a cheesy way, be like, uh, yes, we want this and we want this. And we're going to get our white club servers from Brex, but maybe we'll get like our stability for majority of our cash from like a Bank of America. Who knows? Well, when we think about BAM versus the big four, I also think a lot about the big incumbent social networks versus the upstarts and the small fry. And turns out if you're not over at Facebook, you might have a hard time maintaining your audience. And Natasha, that brings us to the first deal of the week, which is paparazzi or kind of like dunerazzi. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, this company, this company, never fun to see a company shut down. It was in the app store for no longer than two years. And it's shutting down officially at the end of June after having over 5 million users and, you know, over $15 million in venture capital raised. But paparazzi really rose to a height earlier on in the early innings of the pandemic. And its whole premise was, what if your friends were paparazzi of you? So your friends take a photo of you, they tag you in the photo, and it's posted directly on your profile. You yourself cannot post pictures. And it's kind of this playing on this idea that like, what does it look like if you are not the one who's in charge of curating and capturing how you look at all times of the day? And it's your friends. And maybe you see yourself differently because your friends see you differently. authentic type of social network. We've seen a few of these pop up over the years, and I think they're always really earnest. But it being announced that it's shutting down, I think, is really sad. And it only has about 2,000 to 3,000 active users after $6.2 million installs overall. So it just shows you how like something that was interesting is no longer as much. (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah. First of all, I have to say on a personal level, this sounds like a terrible idea to me. Like I would hate it. If someone did that to me, like took candid pictures and just like blasted it without my permission, my knowledge, consent, whatever. So I'm not saying my mindset or my take is like the common one, but I'm, I'll be honest, I'm not shocked that this is not 
didn't take off or is not doing very well. I just don't see it to be a super compelling model. That said, I, I am sorry to see that happen. I never like to see a startup shut down. And I do think it's just illustrative of like how crazy, you know, hype can create like this, this hot company and like it's doing so great. And then within what, less than a year, it's, it's shutting down. Okay. So Marianne, I thought that's what you were going to say. And I, I totally agree with you, but I also just want to say you and I are not in the target demographic for this. And I'm not saying that we're old. I'm not, but I am saying that you and I don't spend enough time around a sufficient density of our friends because we have children and you know, stuff that I don't think it was designed for us. I think this is for like high school students, essentially college students. And maybe they have different norms around what's, you know, okay to share and what's curation. But to me, the fact that they got to over five million users and have now gone to zero just shows how fickle the social media world can be and how the products that do stick are the real I mean, unicorns of the social world. Like Clubhouse had a moment when we were all clubhousing. It was fun. And then it tailed off. And I think Be Real has had some issues retaining its audience over time. On the other hand, Instagram is bigger than it's ever been. So I can't tell the difference between the two because I'm not a social media genius, but like, it's funny to see what sticks and what does not. Yeah. I think a little bit about this framing that Paul from Clubhouse told me at Disrupt last year, which was, he was like, a lot of platforms are used for broadcasting. Like you yourself are kind of like the person who is sharing your message. What does it look like when it's not for the general person, but just for your friend group or just for a private room? And it's something we see in Twitter DMs or we see in Clubhouse private rooms. And even in this way, you yourself not being the broadcaster and paparazzi to me was interesting. I hear it on like the personal note of like, would I feel secure, you know, having pictures taken of me? That probably would not be like something I would want every single day. But I mean, I'm sure there is optionality in what gets posted. I, I doubt that it's like they post something that you cannot have any control over. I just like the idea of companies questioning how people express themselves on social media, which is maybe a little bit of like a sidestep take because it's maybe paparazzi wasn't the way, but I liked kind of what they tried. Um, I like what Be Real is trying too. I like what a lot of these things are trying to question and figure out customer habits. And maybe there's like a perfect merging of all of them that Instagram can't copy, but will compete with. I like the authenticity angle. Yes. Like I do appreciate that. I, I, I can't say what about this model failed necessarily. Mm -hmm. My only guess though, is that Maybe it really did have to do with a certain lack of control. I mean, maybe like there's and maybe there were controls in place that I don't know about, but it, it is kind of fascinating to watch and, and people get interested and they're not. And it's just one more company going away. Well, I'm, I'm really glad this part of the conversation ended up on the question of control and personal information because that <laughs> segues me directly to Databricks buying Okara this week. Essentially, Databricks, if you don't know, they do data lake houses, which is like a data lake and a data warehouse put together. And at one point in time, I could have given you a solid sentence or two about why that matters, but that's a year ago and now I forget. But if you deal with a lot of data, it's a big deal. Databricks, of course, a startup that's well into the unicorn range, across a billion dollars in ARR last year. So that's the context. Now, Okera and why this fits into the idea of privacy and so forth is essentially works with data governance. And so Okera works with a kind of an AI powered system that can automatically discover and classify PII or personally identifying information, tag it, and then apply rules to it. And Databricks is going to bring this into its lakehouse environment, essentially because generative AI creates so much stuff and you want to make sure you don't ingest the wrong things. 
Sadly, no purchase price here, but I'd love to see a small startup acquisition. I feel like we haven't seen a lot of these lately, either in fintech or, or edtech or wherever we kind of pay attention to. So fun to see a smaller deal. Totally. It's kind of another example of Databricks playing offense during this environment. I think we mentioned that it hasn't had layoffs yet, and it, it almost fits the profile of one of a company not to be weird about it, but like it's a late stage company. It has raised a ton of capital. So the fact that it's adding people to its staff is super interesting. And I also think at some point for these companies, it's cheaper to acquire talent through acquisitions than it is to build it in-house. So I don't want to say it's just, you know, soaring in money. I'm sure this was strategic and not just them being like, let's do this for fun right now. I mean, absolutely. I think smart companies realize that, that, hey, even even if we could, it would take maybe years to build out what this startup has built. So it makes much more sense to just acquire that company than try to do it in-house. And Databricks, as of what, last summer, crossed the 1 billion ARR mark, which so is- So much money. Wow. Like, what does that even mean? I mean, that's a lot of money. You know, actually, Ron, so I was prepping for today's show, going back and reading some of our coverage, and I'd forgotten about this piece that our dear friend and colleague Ron Miller had written about how last year, around like the August time, you know, Databricks hit that ARR milestone, and they were still growing at something like 80%, which is just a, a simply insane amount of growth. And so, you know, we were talking about the company in our prep call, and I wanted to verify our view that it was doing well. So we haven't heard about any layoffs there. And I went to their jobs page and I just kept scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. And oh my gosh, they have a lot of open roles around wow. the world. Oh, good news for people listening. Good for them too. I mean, that's that's really, like you said, that rate of growth at this late stage in a, in a company's life is not very common. You know, one thing we saw during the end of the last venture boom was Marianne's domain of fintech becoming some of the most richly valued companies out there. And, you know, when I think about the companies that are taking a lot of the damage today, it does tend to be some of those companies, whereas in Databricks's case, oddly enough, things seem fine. And so I, I wonder actually, is Databricks the most highly valued private company that is not doing poorly? Like I think Ooh, Chime question. hasn't had layoffs. Chime's worth a lot yeah, of money Chime, too. Chime did have layoffs. Yes. Oh, they did? Yes. JK, take that one back. I was trying to give FinTech a solid there and I failed. FinTech needs a solid because <laughs> it its does. most richly valued company has had layoffs. And now it has a new, you know, even more explicit competitor in the ring, Marianne. You wrote about, I guess getting into our first theme, you wrote about Phoenix. Phoenix, Phoenix, Phoenix. Why is it back on our show? Okay. One thing I'm coming to realize in fintech, having really dedicatedly covering the space for three years now, is that there are there's just so much kind of there's a lot of rivalry, of course. And a lot of founders aren't shy about addressing that. And Phoenix is definitely an example of this. Richie Cerna, CEO and co-founder, is very vocal about the fact that Phoenix wants to compete with Stripe. It has slowly and gradually been building up its offerings so that it is more and more of a competitor to Stripe. This week, I wrote about the fact that it is now a payments processor. Last year, it became a payments facilitator, which is different. But now the fact that it's a processor, it really is. I mean, it's squarely in <laughs> Stripe's. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's Stripe's wheelhouse. And so also, if I can just point out, if for those who don't know this, there was some drama back in 2020 when uh, Sequoia invested in Phoenix. Actually, no, they didn't just invest. They led a $35 million Series B into Phoenix and then like a month later walked away from that deal and then basically gave Phoenix $21 million and said, you can keep it. And Phoenix had told employees that soon after getting that money, Sequoia concluded that Phoenix competed too directly with Stripe, which is one of its biggest holdings. 
Can I I ask a question here? So I remember when this all went down and I've also spoken to Richie over at Phoenix and he explained some of the the tech to me back in the day. And I always never quite got it. And but the the argument, Marianne, if I recall, is that they were a SaaS platform that would let you route payments through them. And then they were working with, wasn't it Stripe to actually do the processing? I'm not going to go there because I I think maybe you're right, but I don't remember all those little details. But it was something like a Stripe that they had to work with before they were being a processor, correct? Right. right. They had to have a third party. They were helping people become their own Stripes for a long time, right? Is what I'm pretty sure. Right. But but like, you know, where else was this company going to go? Like, to me, this is this is a, an important news item because Phoenix is a cool company. People use it. Huzzah. But like, also, of course, they're doing this. Why wouldn't they expand their stack, if you will, deeper down to the payment rails? Yeah. And I mean, to be clear, they're not just trying to compete with Stripe. I mean, they're going after like the big four legacy payment processors like Fiserv, JPMorgan Chase, FIS or WorldPay, GPN. So, I mean, you know, they believe that their technology stands out because they built it from the ground up. Okay. Whereas like right. those legacy players did a lot of patching through yeah. acquisition and different things. So they're saying that, you know, that makes their tech a little bit better than these, some of these legacy players. And then, and I ask them, well, okay, what do you think makes you, you know, so much different or better than Stripe? And they were like, well, you know, they believe that Stripe built really for speed and they're claiming that they built more for like scalability and security. And they also said they feel like Stripe started out very simple and that they're hearing from customers that Stripe is actually oversimplified. And whereas Phoenix is able with its tech stack, to, to offer, I guess, more scalability and configurability. That's all the things that he told me. It's not the first time I've heard that sentiment expressed about Stripe, which, you know, I'm happy he said it on the record. I think it's like kind of interesting because like one, this company has clearly rode a decision that they didn't make, which was Sequoia leaving and citing Stripe as a reason. And it's really, I think, been like a very big conversation in Phoenix's life. Every single time we talk about it, every single time they talk about it, I almost I'm always like feeling a little bit like I feel a little weird about it. Honestly, I'm just like, are you riding the wave or are you is this real? And so it's almost like it's very convenient that their biggest competitor also happens to be the highest, most richly valued company in fintech right now. Who would not want that to be their competitor that is always in their headline? I don't know. I feel like it's a big flex. Well, a lot of companies, you know, it's not the only one, like there's checkout.com, right? That welcomes comparisons to Stripe. And then I wrote about another startup this week called Liquido that's building something similar to what Stripe has built in the oh my US, God. but for LATAM and trying to expand upon that. So there's a lot going on. And then and then Stripe was also in the news this week, its own news this week, and that it had signed a big deal with Uber, which was interesting because it had been a longtime partner of Lyfts, which was its competitor. So that also made headlines. It's just, it's interesting how how much Stripe just kind of keeps coming up, right? Well, it turns out payments are a layer that fits into nearly everything that happens in the world of technology. And as we've learned from watching fintech companies more generally, getting into payments in some capacity has been a way to add, you know, extra revenue for a long time. So it's, in a way, it's not surprising to have it come up so much. But I want to make a point about acquisitions, fintech and competition, because we talked about JP Morgan, which we slang for JP Morgan Chase, which is actually the agglomeration of Chase Manhattan Bank, JP Morgan and Co. and Bank One, but it also owns the assets from Bear Stearns, Washington Mutual, and First Republic. And the banks that kind of came together to form this 
conglomerate have predecessors, including in the old days, Chemical Bank, Manufacturers Hanover for Chicago Bank, National Bank of Detroit, Texas Commerce Bank, Providian Financial, Great Western Bank, and the oldest predecessor institution of what is now J.P. Morgan Chase was the Bank of Manhattan Company, which was founded by Aaron Burr. Oh so this God. thing is a Frankenstein of finance. My brain just exploded. Yeah, this is what I get for reading Wikipedia during the show. Sorry, everybody. The point is, like, it's it's amazing to think about how big these major institutions are that startups are either banking with or competing against. It's just bonkers to me how how large these are. So I hope that Stripe, I hope that Phoenix, I hope that Chime can actually knock down some of these giants and, and cut them down to size because that whatever I just described, that thing, probably too big. You know? Yeah. And I, the only other thing I'll say on this topic, and then we can definitely move on, is that this is all just illustrative to me of how resilient infrastructure has continued to be in the fintech space. There's been a lot of different segments within fintech that have, have kind of stumbled over the past year or so, but infrastructure like really consistently continues to do well and attract investors and grow. Completely agree. I mean, the really small point on infrastructure that actually got on my radar before we recorded is a new headline, which is Shopify has reduced workforce for 20% and just sold its mm. logistics business to Flexport for 13% equity. And it's, I guess it's, it's a mm. different kind of infrastructure play. It's like more literal. But I just feel like we're getting a lot more signs of how these companies exist in, in louder ways, which makes me happy because we know things are happening behind the scenes and it rarely tips into a way that we can talk about it on the show. Yeah. But, you know, I guess continuing the tipping conversation, should we talk about down rounds? <laughs> no, not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Because I, I want to talk about the Flexport thing. So essentially, I just want to clarify because I, I didn't get to finish reading that story before we jumped on because it's been a busy morning. So Flexport picked up. Shopify's logistics business and Shopify now owns 13% of Flexport. Yes, that's exactly right. Shopify is selling its, this business to Flexport and in return, it's going to get around 13% in stock. This is, you know, right after layoffs and they had layoffs some months ago too. So they're clearly in an interesting financial position. So what they did was they got rid of part of their business that was non-core and probably burning cash. And in exchange, they got one eighth, 12 and a half percent of Flexport, which is better at logistics. And now they own a chunk of it. So if it succeeds, they do well and they can partner with it. Kind of a great move from Shopify. Right? Yeah, I think that's a good point. Because at first glance, you might be like, oh, wow, that's not good. But yeah, maybe this is actually quite smart strategically on their part. Huh. That's a surprise. I wonder if Shopify has more ownership than Ryan Peterson in Flexport. <laughs> That's my question. <laughs> Ryan, you can come on the show and dispute that if you want. All right. Down rounds. Natasha, thank you for that lovely segue. Keeping the bad news, bad news bears theme of this episode. New data from Carta. Carta is a service that handles um, startup cap tables. If you've worked for a startup, there's a good chance that your equity was on Carta and you've done paperwork through there and so forth. They have a pretty good data team. And so I often look through their information they share because they have literal data from the cap tables. And so we know that what they're pulling is based in reality, even if it's not every single deal, it's a big chunk of them. And down rounds in Q1 were 18.7% of the rounds that they saw. And that might not sound like that much, because of course, some rounds are going to be down rounds, right? But that figure was 5.2% in Q1 22. So like a three and a half X gain in down rounds over kind of a one year period. Does that track with what you guys are hearing? I'm kind of curious how that number feels based on your anecdata. Honestly, I thought it would be higher. Wow. I am not surprised by it. I actually think that tracks for me, honestly, because I don't think many rounds are happening also. So like the fact that those that are happening, that percent is down, fine. Q1 2022 was not all 
Rainbows and Sunshine either. So the fact that things were like already probably starting to gear up in Q1 2022 to be a harder market and it was 5% then, like it feels like it's a 4X increase. That's a huge deal. Yeah. Well, 5% is one in 20 and 18.7% is close to 20%, which is one in five. So like that, wow. that gives you kind of a scale differential. Another data point from the card, the thing that kind of sat me on my ass was, I'm just going to quote this 40% of all investments in the series A and series B companies were bridge rounds in Q1, the highest figure of the 2020s. So bridge rounds, extension rounds, essentially the last terms brought forward companies avoiding repricing, probably with inside investors, adding on doing series A1, series B2s, whatever. You know, if you think about the number of down rounds we're talking about and the number of extension rounds, I wonder how many rounds were up rounds in Q1. It sounds like it's almost like a minority of all the transactions. Wait, yeah. Is it like, can we say that it's like basically 30% or am I doing the math right? No, 40%? because you can't add them directly because the 18.7% all... is of all rounds and the 40% number is just A's and B's. But A's mm-hmm. and B's are pretty big. They're more common than C's and D's. So like, sure. it's yeah. it, it just goes to show that like, of the rounds that are happening, and to your point, not as many deals are happening, the ones that are getting done don't look super healthy from the founder owning equity in their company perspective. I think VCs are probably doing great. I just have to say this is not shocking because if you read my interview with Hans Tung from GGV Capital that ran late last year and also listened in to my interview with him on equity earlier this year, Hans actually very much predicted that 2023 was going to be the year of down rounds. And I really also appreciate that he he said, hey, this is not such a bad thing. It's not the end of the world. I mean, if the alternative is shutting down or laying off people or, you know, things like that, raising a down round is not necessarily such a bad thing. I think the problem for now is that we are we're comparing it to the heydays of, you know, skyrocketing valuations where People were, you know, doubling, tripling valuation within like a year's time, really unsustainable, crazy stuff that was going on. And and now it just feels like a very stark contrast to all of that. Yeah. And the, the damage is really piling up, like not, not just on the valuation front, but we pulled a couple of headlines that were top of mind when we were planning out this little segment. And and one of them is like, you know, Clearco could be raising a round that could slash its valuation by 80%. If that happens, Ooh. we'll let you know. And then Rapid API, an API startup, which you would think would be absolutely crushing it, given how everyone likes to say API, <laughs> might be it drop its staff by 50%. I mean, that's 50% is a decapitation of your staffing. It's not a reduction. A lot. That's a lot. Yeah. So it's tough out there, I think, is the summary. Yeah. And like, again, not making light of it, just trying to figure out the pulse of the market. And the pulse of the market is weak and slow and irregular. Someone told me at the beginning of this year, they were like, oh, I think the worst is yet to come. And I was like, sure, sure, sure. Like, yeah, last year was bad. I'm sure the first few months of this year are going to be bad. And then he was like, no, I think it's going to be like this entire year and then some. And yeah. I was like, almost like, okay. And we still don't know, but I, I don't know. At that point, I still was covering layoffs every day. And I still was like, I don't think we're, it's going to be bad this entire year. And now I'm like, of course, what happens after a down round is, can you get emergency capital when you need it? And I, I don't know. I feel like there's so many big questions that still need to be answered. Like layoffs, not the easy part, but it is a part. Now the rebuilding begins. And if you can't rebuild, it happens all over again. And I think we kind of forget that sometimes. And also we're in May already. I know. What is Keep this that year? In mind. I mean, we're almost halfway through the year and things do not look like they're getting better. I, I'm going to 
tease an upcoming Equity Wednesday that I'm putting together. We're recording it in like a week and a half, but it's going to be with a VC that you've heard of. It's going to be about unicorns and profitability and lack thereof and how some unicorns haven't died yet but they're probably going to. And so I just want to say that when we talk about the worst is yet to come, I think we haven't yet seen enough startup deaths to have cleared the backlog of issues stemming from the last boom. And again, not delighting in this, but I think there's some paper unicorns out there that I've yet to fold that are going to just go to zero. And don't take my word for it. Take the word of this VC we're having on the show in a week and a half. Love that teasing. Well, let's end with this framing you just perfectly said, Alex, which is probably going to die, but hasn't yet, which is Twitter. Whoa! That is Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) So many rivals. The latest that has stolen the hearts and FOMO of tech Twitter is Blue Sky. And I think everyone wants to diversify their platform because they're worried that the Twitter that we all know and love is gone in a lot of ways. But how do we feel about Blue Sky as the next kind of contender that's with T2 and, and Mastodon and Post is another one, I think. Marianne, I want to get, you have the spiciest takes on social media out of the three of us. So what is your perspective on Blue Sky? This is where I want to start. Okay. Well, first of all, I cannot really give a very informed opinion since I am not yet on Blue Sky, but I can give you kind of just my overall opinion. And one of the things that really strikes me here is that this is a decentralized social network backed by Twitter co-founder Jack Dorsey. Okay. Was he not the person that was like buddy, buddy with Elon and pushing for him to buy Twitter? And now it's like, he's kind of backpedaling and being like, oh, I didn't know this was going to happen. I didn't know that was going to happen. And now he's, you know, backing this rival. I, I don't know. All of it just feels icky to me. Like, it just feels kind of weird. I was gonna say, I mean, I don't even know if he's just backing it. He's building this thing. He's like equated with it. And a lot of people are saying people are giving Jack Dorsey a second chance here because Blue Sky feels at the moment like a front runner for the Twitter alternative conversation. The tweak, you know, that yes, there's a different CEO and there is like a tweak around decentralization, even though the app feels like a Twitter copy paste. So that's like my okay. question, too. But I, I don't want to just start off cynical. I want to like also. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's, yeah. And that's the last thing I'm going to say, like, this is totally conjecture and I'm not saying this is what happened but like if you really wanted to be a conspiracy theorist you can be like oh Jack Dorsey wanted Elon to buy Twitter because maybe he knew he would completely run it to the ground and then he could go start this rival okay now I I would hope and really really hope that's not the case but I could see these sort of theories flying around he was working on blue sky while he was at Twitter though and then it spun out. Mm. So I'm like, okay. what? I mean, I not a consumer reporter. Alex, please jump in. I just love that Marianne started off like stirring the pot. So the thing about Blue Sky is that it is decentralized. And so you're you have a weird username. I think I'm Alex Wilhelm dot BLSKY dot Tumblr dot GIF or whatever the <laughs> f- Yes. But like when you log in, when you oh join, you don't have to pick a server. And Mastodon is like, hi, welcome to Mastodon. What's your server? Like you already mess up like by, by logging right. on. Yeah. It's like asking me what satellite is currently supplying data to my cell phone. So anyways, I'm not going to be tooting on Mastodon because whatever. I do agree that it looks like a basic Twitter clone. And that's actually the opposite of a diss because it's 
awesome. And it does the thing that I want, which is I can post crappy tweets or skeets, as they say on the app. And then other people can can talk to me back or re-skeet me. It's fantastic. It's all I want. I don't need, you know what I don't love? Twitter DMs. You know what I don't need? Super likes. You know what I don't want is ads. If you put, if you go to Blue Sky, and we'll talk about who's on there and why that matters in a second, and just use it and then go back to Twitter for iOS, for example, your feed on Twitter is so polluted with low-grade ads right now and crap that's just inserted into your feed. Blue Sky feels like a breath of fresh air. I co-sign like 95% of what you just said, other than DMs are my biggest use case for Twitter. So I'm super <laughs> bummed that that's not a thing yet. Like that's the only way I'm able to like source and get tips and stuff like that. So I'm like, that's why I'm on Twitter every day still. That and it being a really nice yeah. desktop experience for me. But yes, day to day. And I exactly, Alex, I think this answers a lot of people's prayers. They don't want to be challenged when they're using social media. They want to just do it. And this helps them freaking just do it. You don't have to think about it. And that's like always been crypto's biggest issue with onboarding. And so I'm kind of just like happy to see a decentralized crypto looking tool not look like it or feel like it. That's the way to get people into it. Yeah. It's also fast because I don't think it's predicated on a particular blockchain. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Anyways, Blue Sky is a lot of fun. And Natasha, we need to give credit to the people there because that's why it's fun. We had a great piece by Morgan Sung on this. You should read it. So far, Blue Sky has brought together a couple of user demographics. One is effectively Black Twitter, which is a major source of culture on Twitter historically and a key part of American culture and online culture, I would say more generally. And then also Blue Sky is populated with a lot of just separately weirdos and freaks. And so it's very rich in terms of its per skeet cultural relevance. And it's a lot of fun. Does that that make sense? I think Morgan did a good job trying to like clarify like what Blue Sky needs to do to be the right alternative. And Alex, I think a big part of it is being hospitable and great to the groups that you just explained. Like, you know, her story puts it in the headline for Blue Sky to thrive. It needs sex workers and black Twitter, and it needs to be able to protect vulnerable communities, something Twitter has proven time and time and time again that it cannot do and, you know, constantly contradicts itself. And I don't think I need to explain to you how much black Twitter has influenced humor and pop culture, but losing that is more than just, oh, we don't have a place to like kind of quote tweet dunks on Andreessen's latest investment. It means like a huge like bastion of culture. It doesn't have a place to go. Where can it go that it is heard and felt safe? And that's, I think what Morgan tells well in her story and what hopefully makes me more excited about Blue Sky, which, you know, over the weekend, it swiftly banned a user who harassed others with transphobic remarks. Plus one for that. Yeah. Um, I think that's our show, but we should end with our shout out corner. Marianne, I believe you have some important shout outs to do. Yes, yes. This week, I asked you all, please, could you leave five stars for us on Apple Podcasts? And you came through. Thank you so, so much for the love. I'm going to shout out a few of you this week. We'll get to the rest next. Benti, Hussein, Jared, thank you. We really appreciate it. Hell yeah. Marianne was worried that people weren't going to dial in after she tweeted it out. And turns out Marianne's popular and fantastic. So there you go. Natasha, let's split these next ones up. I'll take Disrupt to start. Let's do it. Our big conference is back in San Francisco in September, the 19th through the 21st. I will be there in spades. It's going to be a blast. I think I'm hosting one of the stages. So if you want to see me try to look presentable, come on down. And critically, I want to say you should apply for Startup Battlefield if you are building a very early stage company. Nisha Tombe is in charge of that for us. She's a friend of mine. She's brilliant. And she wants to read through your application. And if you get accepted, she wants to work with you on your pitch for 
on stage stuff. It's a great time. It is so soon. Also, like I cannot believe it is coming up like really in just a handful of months, a little more than a quarter. But my updates are that you can use code equity for TC plus subscriptions. And you can also get 15% off of your passes to disrupt the show that we just mentioned. The agenda is out. You all know and love equity. Thank you for being here. And I know you'll love TechCrunch Plus as well if you're already not subscribed, but I'm sure most of you already are. I will include links in the show notes as always. And we're always on at EquityPod on Twitter. All right. We love you all. We're out of here. Bye. Bye. Equity Fridays are hosted by myself, Editor-in-Chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch Senior Reporters, Natasha Mascarinas and Mary Ann Azevedo. We're produced by Teresa Loconsolo with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickovet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back next week.